0: For the ungodly and sinners for the holy and unholy and profane for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers for the sexually immoral for men who practice homosexuality slavers, liars perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed god with which I have been entrusted. So we see in this passage that there are behaviors that are in accordance with the gospel, and there are behaviors that are in discordance with the gospel. And the law speaks to those who are living lives in discordance with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I won't spend much time on this section. People do get very confused about the role of the law in the Christian life. And I thought I would just give you a quick explanation of one of the things happening in this passage and happening through Jesus regarding the law. They say that every middle-aged man has to choose between one of two hobbies when he hits a certain age. He can either dive deep into World War II history or get really good at barbecue. And I haven't declared my major yet. I'm kind of dabbling. I'm trying to decide which of those two I will get super into, but I'm a pretty big fan of World War II history. I think there's an illustration to be provided about the law as it relates to World War II. The United States was the decisive contributor to that victory, and above all other contributors that the United States provided, the singular or the primary reason we were able to win that war was because we were able to convert factories that made consumer products into factories that made bombs and bullets. This is probably, logistically speaking, if you were just saying what is the number one means, it was this ability to pivot our industrial complex from making toasters and refrigerators and vacuums basically items meant to help people live good lives, into basically violence factories, death factories. This was our greatest contribution to the war, certainly not our only, but this was something we had that no one else had, save secondarily the Germans. So in understanding what the law is to the Christian, you need to understand essentially that illustration, only in reverse. The law is God's munitions factory aimed to shell the unrepentant sinner into surrender. And when a sinner is saved and surrenders to Jesus Christ, that factory that once made bombs and bullets is converted into making toasters and refrigerators and couches, equipping the Christian for the good life. What is the law? The law for the sinner is a factory of violence meant to shell them into surrender, meant to show them that they are at war with the Holy God. And then in Jesus, we are saved. And that same thing. That same force, the law, doesn't go away. Jesus says he fulfills it. It it, it doesn't become irrelevant to us. It remains relevant to us. This is what theologians refer to as the third use of the law. The law which once was the factory of violence to, to force us into surrender is now the furnishing of the good life. We look at the law and we see the wisdom of God and we see principles for living and so on and so forth. And so this factory which once shelled us is now sort of helping us love the Lord. And that is an amazing thing to think about, that this, this thing which God created had its initial application in forcing us to repentance and forcing us to surrender but had always intended by God to, once we surrendered, be the exact same tool that God would use us to show us how to raise our kids and what marriage looks like and how to run a government and so on and so forth. And so I wanted to touch on that because there is a consistent heresy within evangelicalism that is hostile toward the law and the life of the believer, false. The law simply isn't what it was for us once, but it is extraordinarily useful and it is a gift from the Lord and it is good. The second we see the glorious Lord, look at verse 12. Why did the law get converted from a bomb factory for us into giving us a good life? Because Jesus fulfilled it. Look at verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We see the good law. I want you to see the glorious Lord. I recently came across something that a Muslim apologist had written. So this is a defender of the Muslim faith. And he just accidentally scored a touchdown for the Christians. Uh, in, In providing his greatest, or what he thought of was a great defense against the Christian faith, he accidentally sort of scored on his own goal. Just listen to what he wrote. Imagine believing Allah was stripped naked by his own creation and dragged, whipped, and beaten, then finally hanged on a cross and killed. Imagine believing the hands of Allah, which are outstretched and contain infinite bounty, were forcibly tied together, pierced, and broken. He just did more to praise the glory of the gospel than many theologians have done. He just did more to praise the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because indeed the hands full of bounty, the hands outstretched to provide and sustain and rule and subdue, surrendered to sinful man so that through this surrender, he might fulfill the law on our behalf. And it's no wonder that Paul says, after after declaring such things, Paul says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When your critics keep accidentally esteeming your Savior, you know you've probably found the right thing. And we have, wholly do- due to Christ's goodness, we have found the right thing. We have found Jesus Christ who converts, now let's talk about this for a minute, who converts this factory of shelling into a factory of blessing. Let's make make one thing very clear about this. You are saved by works. Just not your works. You are saved by the fulfillment of the law. You are saved by the fulfillment of the law. You did not fulfill the law. So just so we keep our sense of compatibility between law and gospel, they are not in contradiction or or competition. You are saved by works, the works of Jesus Christ. You are saved by the fulfillment of the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law on your behalf. And so we see this great and glorious gospel in verses eight through 17. And then we see a familiar pattern that arises all over scripture where an amazing promise of God is presented, we are usually going to find, after that amazing promise, some warning against presumption. Now, the next time you read through the whole Bible, you can mark this particular pattern. It's all over the place. An amazing promise is presented, and then a warning against presuming on that promise. And you can find this all over the place, from Deuteronomy to Hebrews and so on and so forth. In fact, all week as I was studying this chapter, I thought of Hebrews 2 that says very early on in verses 1 through 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So what we've seen initially is this amazing salvation, which God had in mind for all time. And now we see in verses 18 through 20 a warning against presumption. If you're you're keeping notes, we've covered the good law and the glorious Lord, and now we will see this great loss. look with me in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So what is this great loss that we're talking about? We're talking about this phrase, made shipwreck, made shipwreck, of their faith in verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, not only Hymenaeus and Alexander, but others and including Hymenaeus and Alexander. And we need to think about what this warning against presumption means. What is a shipwreck of faith? So here's the dead honest truth. The Bible's data on this question is intentionally incomplete. We do not have enough information about this to draw distinctive, decisive conclusions. There is a tendency in some areas for the Bible to leave certain questions open to question so that the reader will ponder, contemplate, and consider in more detail. Now, what we can say about this issue of a shipwreck is that one of the reasons why it is so difficult to discern, well, what is a shipwreck of the faith, is because there are two categories of broken disciples that appear to be the same but are very, very different. And the way that I would describe these is you've got on the one hand, I'm going to call them a deceptive disciple, okay? You've got a deceptive disciple. And then on the other hand, you've got a deceived disciple. And these are two very different things, but they look similar, okay? What is a deceptive disciple? Well, Jesus in Matthew 13, he teaches about this idea when he talks about the parable of the sower and the soils, And he talks about certain kinds of seeds that fall on certain or certain kinds of soil that, when the seed falls on it, it appears to be good and grow, and then, of course, it doesn't grow. Here, then, this is verse 18 of Matthew 13. Here, then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, uh, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So, there's one category. It's like you don't even see any fruit. They just just never show up that those people would not deceive us into making us think that they were disciples the next two would verse 20 as for what is sown on the rocky ground this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while and then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word and on account of the word he immediately falls away and then he jesus talks about uh, a seed that is sown on the soil full of uh, thorns. And he says, yeah, this one starts off good too, and then it gets choked out. So when we're talking about a deceptive disciple, we're talking about someone who appears to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and then turns out not to be. And in the story of Jesus, God, the, the master story writer, includes a character that fits that bill. And there's a character like that in a lot of Bible stories. And the character in the Jesus story is Judas, someone who appeared to be a disciple, but who was not. Were Hymenaeus and Alexander those kinds of guys? Is that what Paul means by shipwreck? Maybe. But there's another category, and that's the deceived disciple. The deceived disciple is actually a Christian. But they are in a moment of weakness, in a moment of bondage, in a moment of being deceived, they appear not to be. Or the evidence of them being Christians is extremely suspect. So think back to the Jesus story again. You've got Judas, okay, we know, like, okay, we know what he is, but then what about all the other guys? Well, they all deserted him. Now, there is a moment in that desertion when they fit the bill of what Jesus describes in Matthew 13, 20. There was a moment when they looked every bit like they were seeds sown on rocky soil. Let me read verse 20 of Matthew 13 again. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy and yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. Well, that just looks like Peter. So these two categories, the deceptive disciple, the one that's not really, but appears to be, and the deceived disciple, the one who really is, but is in a season of life that really makes it challenging to discern, the, the, to discern with certainty the reality of their salvation. This is why we can't decide what a shipwreck is exactly. I think the way that I would talk about it is simply this. Some shipwrecks can be salvaged and some shipwrecks will be sunk. Some shipwrecks can be repaired and returned back on their voyage and some shipwrecks will come to total ruin. And, If you're in a position where you're close to being a shipwreck or you look and maybe consider that you are a shipwreck, this is obviously a great warning against presumption. It's like, if I can't tell you and the Bible won't tell you, how can you know how this will all end? The heart is deceitful and wicked. What is the solution to the problem of shipwreck? What is the solution to both categories? Well, this is a very interesting thing the Bible does. The Bible probably doesn't give the average Christian concrete assurance. Probably doesn't even intend to give them that because that leads to a level of presumption. So I'm not sure that there is this absolute concrete assurance that should endure through all seasons. If you're in a season of ignoring Christ... If you're in a season of great bondage to sin, it's probably not God's intention that you feel absolute assurance in that time. I think that's just how the Bible talks about these sorts of things. The Bible could be way clearer if it wanted us to have concrete assurance in all times. It it just doesn't seem to be trying to do that. God doesn't seem to be interested in doing that. Now, we would certainly be interested in having that if we wanted to have our fire insurance and also live like we want. But the Bible doesn't seem to do that. The Bible says, like, here's this great, glorious salvation. It's more amazing than you can imagine. It's all of grace. Jesus is amazing. Don't presume. That seems to be the basic pattern. So what do we do to make sure that we're not presuming? Well, and then also, what do we do to make sure we're not, like, seeing a shipwreck behind every corner? Okay, so here's the idea I think the Bible is presenting You should not presume, but you should not have some fear that apostasy is lurking behind every corner. You should have confidence in Jesus's saving power. You should have confidence in the promises of God, but you should also not be presumptive. And here's how I think the Bible does that. The Bible essentially tells you exactly what leads to apostasy. So you're able then to look and say, am I on this path? And if I'm not, then I don't need to live a life of insecurity and worry and nervousness. But if I am, I probably should be a little insecure and nervous. And so there are multiple passages that just say, if this is your life, you should worry. And that's, that's very helpful because that way I don't have to keep in mind all possible threats. I can simply look for these things. And this passage has a definitive cause for shipwrecks. It doesn't have a definitive explanation of what a shipwreck is. A shipwreck could be a deceived Christian. A shipwreck could be a deceptive Christian. It doesn't have that. But what it does give us is a definitive cause for shipwrecks. And that cause is in verse 20 or verse 19. But I need to read 18 again because it's kind of connected. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Okay. We're on verse 19. Need your attention here. We want to be careful. This is an extremely sensitive subject. So we're going to be careful and want to pay attention. And, and I, I can't get uh, polemical with you here because I don't want to pull up wheat that is actually wheat. I, I, you need to do the work on you. Don't make me do the work on you. I'm going to give you information. You be the one who does the work on your heart right now, okay? Ask the Lord to help you. We can see very clearly in the Greek that what Paul says caused the shipwreck of many, not just Hymenaeus and Alexander, but there's some involved here, is one thing. He says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And when you look into the Greek further, you can see that that single thing they are rejecting is a good conscience. Paul mentions two things, faith and a good conscience, When he says, by rejecting this, the Greek article is referring directly to a good conscience. How do you know you are in danger of a shipwreck? You are rejecting a good conscience. We need to understand what that means, but that's explicit here. This is the cause of shipwrecks, rejecting a good conscience. Okay, so now we need to understand what a good conscience is. I think that the best way to do this is for me to now transition from what I think was exposition, some people think not, but I think that was exposition, and transfer now into application, and kind of pastorally walk you through some of my own experiences dealing with conscience. And I mean this to, I hope this serves you. Let me me tell you a a bit of a illustration, a bit of a story first, and, and we'll work from that. Suppose I wanted to rob a bank. I didn't want to hurt anybody, I just wanted to take all the money. And so I deemed that like I'm not going to do this in the middle of the day, I'm going to do this in the middle of the night, when no one's around, and so on so on. My plan is to rob this bank. And let's suppose that I decided that the primary, uh, the primary obstacle to robbing this bank is the alarm system. It's a, it's a sophisticated alarm system. Just to break through the illusion for, or the analogy for a second, the conscience is an alarm system, right? So uh, I want to rob a bank, and the main problem is an alarm system. One of the ways I might overcome that issue is I would figure out a way to make the alarm system go off all the time when nothing was wrong. And if I could do this consistently, especially at the time of day when... Uh, I planned on robbing it. So like, let's say midnight. Or maybe I would even correlate the alarm system going off with like rain, right? So what I'm doing is I'm creating false correlations and I'm creating almost a desensitized, a desensitized response to the alarm by making the alarm highly sensitive. Are you tracking with me? So I wanna rob this bank and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make this alarm highly sensitive to like leaves that land on it and things like that. And I want this alarm to just go off all the time. Initially, the bank manager will do the responsible thing and he will investigate the cause of this or that thing and he will call the alarm company in and the police will be responsible and they'll arrive every time the alarm goes off and so on and so forth, but I'm just gonna keep doing it relentlessly. And maybe three or four months in, literally everyone responsible for listening to that alarm has now sort of begun to view the alarm as a nuisance. And it's keeping them from sleeping at night. It's a pretty good illustration, come on now. Well, pastorally, I want you to understand a few things. You have an enemy the whole context of 1 Timothy is warfare. That's what I would planned on talking about more generally and then felt like the Lord wanted me to deal with specifically with this for you. You have an enemy. And he wants to, as Jesus says, steal, kill, and destroy. That enemy has many obstacles he must overcome, but the one that is kind of built into you is your conscience. One of the devil's strategies is to miscalibrate your conscience so that eventually you will learn to ignore it altogether. Now, many of us, uh, I, actually not me, uh, but I, I, I did not have a pre-reformed theology phase of the Christian life. I, when I came to faith, I, that's what I saw in the Bible. But many, many others did. Many people in this room have lived in previous seasons of Christianity under what I would refer to as the tyranny of subjectivism. Promptings, leadings, pricks of the conscience, emotional manipulation. And so if I were going to look at the people that I love, the people that I am called to care for and feed and protect, and say, what is the most Reasonable way these people can abandon a good conscience. What's, I'll get inside the head of the enemy and think about this. I won't be ignorant of the devil's schemes. How? If you have gone through a season of life in your youth, in a different denomination, and another faith tradition, or even just this is how you're naturally wired, this is how I'm naturally wired, to have an extremely sensitive conscience, I want you to be aware that at some point, initially, you may have played along and you may have tried to come to the, uh, figure out, like, why is the alarm going off here? And why is the alarm going off there? And why is the alarm going off here? But eventually, it's very possible, dear Christian, that you have chosen just to stop listening to the alarm. And you have responded to the tyranny of subjectivity with almost a, non-spiritual objectivity in which the actual relationship with the Holy Spirit examining your heart that is inherently at least somewhat subjective has been abandoned because you found all of that to be excruciatingly difficult to navigate. So let me just say something very plainly about the nature of the world that you live in, dear friend. You live in a world where bad people with seared consciences will manipulate people with sensitive consciences. This is the world you live in. You live in a world where bad people with seared consciences will manipulate people with sensitive consciences. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 provides an example of this. Now the Spirit, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciousness are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So what we see in this text is exactly what I just told you. Deceitful spirits working through, I'm sorry, but this is just, this is just truth time, working through the Fauci's who have seared consciences, who are simply in it for power. They are not having trouble sleeping at night by lying about gain of function or something. like, They're just utterly soulless Nazgul types, okay? And what they will do is they will go to you, sensitive conscience sheep, and tell you what loving your neighbor looks like. That's in the realm of politics, but friends, I've grown up in the church and many a minister sometimes maliciously, sometimes through his own error, has done the same to countless ears, countless young ears, and created an overly sensitive conscience that initially may result in a kind of extremely careful piety, but almost always in the end produces a Christian in their 30s or 40s who has turned off the alarm system altogether and watches whatever movie they want, Drinks as much as they want, spends as much time alone as they want, spends their money on what they want, having completely abandoned the conscience altogether. And friends, I get it. I've been there. Absolutely have been there have absolutely gotten to that moment where I just shut off the system because the system itself was so miscalibrated. And it truly was. So miscalibrated, so overly sensitive, so manipulated by so many people, I just really didn't even know. And so, What is the most likely pathway for the most people in this room for you to wind up shipwrecked via rejecting a good conscience? It is what I'm describing here. A baby-with-the-bathwater approach to subjectivity in the Christian life. It is a baby-with-the-bathwater approach to promptings and voices from the Lord to subjectivity and to alarms of the conscience. And friends, I can just tell you that a highly sensitive conscience is really only a few steps away from being a seared conscience. As someone who has tried this approach, I just have to tell you it's not the, it's not the right way. One of the things you need to understand is, is that some of this will get better as you get older. A sense of proportion is a fundamental to a successful Christian life, and it's just not very easy to have a sense of proportion in your 20s. But don't do what I did. Don't do what a lot of people have done and just hit that alarm. Just say, just, I'm just going to be done with all of that. I guess what I'm saying is don't become a cessationist and don't become a Presbyterian, I guess that's that's what I'm saying. I love those guys. But don't go that way. It, it, It won't actually do what you want it to do. To quote Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, the part that always stuck out to me, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So what am I doing this morning? I'm calling you back into the subjectivity Asking you to trust that that is the only way. Asking you to understand that there is just an inevitability about a tender conscience and sorting that out, that you can't take the shortcut where you just shut it off. You've got to train it. You've got to calibrate it. And that takes time. If this describes you, I want you to repent today of shutting it off. I'm not going to be able to fix that this morning, to fix the underlying problems. We can't calibrate your conscience this morning. I just want you to say, I, I, I'm going to listen to my pastor and, and go back into the less comfortable experience of navigating the conscience in a more subjective way sensitive way and I have three suggestions for and I'm almost done for how to do this the first one is you've got to curate the people in your lives you have got to get rid of people who bind your conscience at least don't listen to them and you've also got to get done with the people who tell you anything goes Listen, I don't want to bind your conscience about what movies you watch and so forth, but young people, let me just tell you something. I hear things and I'm like, you're just not setting yourself up to win. You're surrounding yourself with people who tell you everything is okay, and there is no boundary, there are no rules, there are, you're just not setting yourself up to win. And here's the truth is, if, I don't think you're necessarily are even trying to win. I think many times you're, you're like, I've got my fire insurance, I'm good. It's like, that's, you're not going to win. You're going to lose if that's your approach. So you have to curate the people in your lives. You do not give credence to conscience binders, no matter what PhD they have, no matter what books they have, no matter how amazing their internet ministry is. If you want to bind my conscience with something that God would not, I'm done with you. Sometimes I will intentionally provoke. I have one photo that I'll put on Facebook sometimes to intentionally just filter out more conscience binders. And it's me smoking a cigar. <laughs> you would not believe the number of direct messages I've gotten from people who would bind my conscience on that very thing. It's like, listen, I love you, I, I'm not, but, but I'm not going to listen to you. You don't, you don't know how to do this. Or as, some, as, as Spurgeon said, When someone wrote him a letter about cigars, he he wrote back, dear friend, thank you kindly for your advice, but I have trouble enough keeping the Ten Commandments without you adding an 11th. (laughs) To be highly suspicious of anything that comes in, social justice, racial equity, white guilt, masks as loving your neighbors, like uh, King James only, this and that, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, stop, stop. You are doing something really bad. I know you don't realize it, but you're being used by the devil to make it harder for people to listen to their consciences. You're adding noise to the signal. So number one, you need to make sure you're curating the people in your life. And here's the thing, you need people in your life who will actually play this game with you. Be like, you ask, hey, is this such and such a problem? I'm kind of feeling weird about it. They're like, you know, it wouldn't be for me, but let's explore if it is for you and vice versa. It was a fundamental individuality to love. It's like, you must stand before your God. How do I help you do that, not become me? So that's first thing. Secondly, you just need to see the conscience the way that Paul sees the conscience. And what I mean by that is, is the man just talks about it all the time. The conscience isn't a unfortunate flaw in his design. The conscience is a key part of his ministry and his progress in the Christian faith. And I, I, I mean, dozens of passages. I, I won't stick them in at 11.04 on Sunday morning, but there's just a few I do want you to see. In Acts 23, he says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. We saw two weeks ago in 1 Timothy 1.5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting, oh, sorry, I skipped over, but the aim of our charge is, is to love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. He starts 2 Timothy, verse three, chapter one. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. And here's the one I think is most important for our purposes, Acts 24, 16. I always take pains to have a clear conscience before, toward both God and man. And here's the, I think, where you really need to feel gut punched by the Lord right now, okay? Some of us stopped listening to our consciences because of what Paul just says there. We want an easy, soft, comfortable, cohesive life. And Paul says, I take great pains to listen to my conscience. And you don't want pain. And so you've hit that alarm all the way off. It's like, no, stop being so entitled. I a good conscience and a good relationship with your conscience will involve as paul says in acts 24:16 great pain it's worth it and this is another piece that i'm going to leave you with if you love comfort you have probably been shutting down your com- conscience because those two things are not compatible consciences are uncomfortable they very rarely just start beaming praise. (laughs) I very rarely say, Chris, you are doing great. And of course, if that happened, I'd probably start freaking out about that. If you love comfort, you are probably shutting down your conscience. Now, it may just be in one particular area. If you love money and you are not being generous toward God, you are, I guarantee you, disobeying your conscience. But this desire you have for financial security is overwhelming your conscience. And you're, you're, you're on your way to shipwreck, friend. If, if, if you love, uh, if you have a lust problem, your conscience knows, it does. But you have this desire over here, and so you're shutting it down. Friends, when you hit that conscience snooze button, We don't have to worry about apostasy coming from all directions. We know where it comes from. It comes from the conscience snooze button. It's completely understandable, both as a sinner and also someone with a highly sensitive conscience, why there would be multiple motivations for shutting down the conscience. And third, I'll leave you here. One of the best things for your conscience is to take communion as you are taught to take communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it. Pause. Jesus had a perfectly calibrated conscience. His conscience was perfect. That's so cool. Let's ask Jesus to give us some of his conscience, right? So Nathias uh, took, betrayed, took bread, and when he given things, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill, some have died, but if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged, for when we are judged by the Lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What is Paul talking about? This is not something, I want to teach on this sometimes. You know, we take communion every week. We need to teach about this sometimes. What is Paul talking about when he's talking about examining? Here is dead truth. He is not saying, did you sin this week? Because you did. And the glorious gospel is presented to you here to say, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. To not partake of the table because you've sinned is to demonstrate you don't understand the table. The table is for sinners. So what is this examining really going on here? It is divorcing any thoughtfulness about your sin from the table. It's essentially doing this because it's here or doing this because you have some sort of vague notion that Jesus is worthy, or that Jesus, the cross is good, or so forth. No, no, no. Get your elements. Sit down. Confess your sins. Take and taste and see that the Lord is good and will forgive you your sins. Get your elements. Sit down. Confess your sins. What's going on in your heart this week? Where have you strayed? Let the subjectivity as a part of the Christian life happen converse with the lord confess your sins he is faithful and just in jesus christ represented here at this table to forgive you come get your elements go sit down confess your sins and then receive not just a word but something you can taste and smell and see receive that the payment of jesus christ for your sins has been made and that you are forgiven in Christ. You do that every week. You reckon your sins on the cross of Jesus Christ every week until they stop being what they were. It will happen. But let's make sure that we haven't done what, honestly, is so easy to do. Abandon the tyranny of the subjectivity. Engage in this sort of it's all fine a way of life. Let's let our souls be reopened to the Holy Spirit who has things to tell us even today. So why don't you pray with me? Lord God, there are lots of enemies that would do terrible things with our consciences. You are in charge of all that. You will protect us. You will take care of us. You will give us wisdom. You will give us people who will stand up for us when we're being bullied and we don't know it. You will help us. So we should, I believe that for me, I think this is probably something that others have in common. For me, shutting off the conscious was sort of like a man-centered approach to a spiritual problem. Like just being done with subjectivity was sort of something I came up with as an alternative to trusting you with a harder, more nuanced process. So Lord, would we just express our trust in you this morning in acknowledging the role of the conscience and saying, yeah, it's a bit messier, certainly more painful, but I think this is what God wants and I can trust him with it. And Lord, would you every single week when we take the Lord's table, would you keep us from walking in some error that would that would not see our sin as integrated into this. Like, God, make our sin real to us so that we can know forgiveness in a real way and make this Lord's table the means of grace you've intended it to be so that week after week after week, as we reckon with the amazing love poured out by Jesus and we reckon with our stupid, prideful, small-minded sin, God, you would break our hearts and you would strengthen us with grace. In Jesus' almighty name we pray, amen. Come.